So last week, we talked about this three-way partnership. It's not exactly the word, but this three-part group of man and earth and rain. And man's job is to work the earth, and in doing so, to work himself, develop himself and develop the earth. And the rain is a reminder that there's an ingredient uh, always that's vital, that's critical, that we can't provide or do anything about, and yet um, is in Hashem's hands at all times. Hi. Hello. Good morning. So the, the basic message with rain was, or not with rain, but there was a basic message which is that a lack of rain the purpose of a lack of rain is to remind us that there are, there are things that are left only in Hashem's hands that we don't have control over. And so man was created originally where there was a lack of rain. He was born into a lack of rain, so he should notice there was no rain, and then he should appreciate how good it is when it rains, which people are able to think of rain as not being so good, and so when, when someone doesn't have rain, they realize how good the rain is, and they also daven for it. They ask for it. I suppose it reminds a little bit that it, they tell a story that the Vilna Gaon once spoke in Shul. That's the hard part to believe of this story because he was not known for speaking in Shul. He was not the rabbi of the Shul. But this is the way I heard this story. That the Vilna Gaon gave a drasha in Shul and maybe it was... In before Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur or something, mm-hmm. and he spoke, and it was quite a frightening drasha. He spoke about Gehenna, and he spoke about Yisurim, and he spoke about punishment. And afterwards, someone came to him with a complaint. They said, you know, I haven't been able to sleep since I heard you speak, and I, I'm having anxiety. And <laughs> he said, and the Gros said, everything I said is true. Not only that, I said much less than is the truth. There's much, it's much worse than anything I said. He said, there's one thing I didn't say, which is that when we have Yasurim, when we suffer, and you know, we know from Chazal that Yasurim can be anything from something very, very, very awful and painful, right down to sticking your hand in your pocket and getting the wrong coin, which is an inconvenience and maybe even a frustration, but certainly not terrible suffering. All of that is called Yisurim. Any, all of that is suffering. And that Yisurim, Yisurim erases the suffering we have in the next world. When we have it here, so we're clean for the next world. He said, if we would realize how much benefit we have from suffering, we'd ask for it. It reminds me a little bit of this idea with the rain. Rain is not really suffering. Rain is a bracha. We, know, we think of rain as a bracha. We know rain is a bracha. But depending on where you live, sometimes people feel rain is inconvenient and mm-hmm. frustrating and cold and mm-hmm. wet and, you know, makes it harder to drive and slower and things are slippery. But if we, if we only realized how much benefit we get from it, we would daven for it. So with rain, we do, perhaps because we were created into that environment so that we would remember. And that tied into the Parsha when we had in Hukas about the hitting the rock this idea that the lack of water 
from the beginning of the time in the Midbar until that second time at the end of the time in the Midbar was to teach us that there we are given free will and we are given choice and we God gave us that in order in, <laughs> in order that we should rise above our own natures which is supernatural literally and choose what is right even if it isn't what we feel like doing in this moment if it is that's lovely but even if it's not and at the same time to recognize that there's a peace that God is always in control over everything. More, <laughs> there's the one part is that God created everything and controls everything. Nothing controls him. And the other is that we have an obligation to make choices and to do and to work and develop. So this idea of the water and the relationship to drinking water seems to be very intertwined. So the next part that I wanted to build on what we said last week are you able to hear me okay, Mrs. Khan? What? Can you hear me all right yes, today? beautifully. Thank okay. you. I can't project as well as last week, but I'll do my best. This week I wanted to build on what we said last week, but to show how the message of the rain is intertwined with Tzchiyas HaMesim. So that was kind of the next step. Um... Okay. So we mentioned last week, Rabbi Leff, in his book on Shmona Esrei, talks about reading Somech Noflim Verofe Asurim as spiritual illnesses. And then when you see them that way, you realize they're a progression. So that Rofe Cholim, that Hashem heals the sick, is that He heals those who have fallen into sinning, and in doing so, they have spiritual sickness that holds them down, not because it was on purpose. I think an example would be someone who ate tray food, and especially someone who ate tray food and did not know that they were eating tray food, or maybe they didn't know about kosher and treif, right? Whatever it is. So tray food has an effect on the heart. It has an effect that it's difficult for spiritual ideas to get into our hearts when a person eats non-kosher food. And that when a person eats kosher food, there's an openness in their heart to what is Torahic and what is true. That's called timtum halev, the, the clogging up, spiritual congestion of the heart. Um, and if somebody, for whatever reason, starts eating kosher, even by accident, and they stop eating tray foods, all of a sudden it's much easier for them to learn Torah and to do mitzvos. So that would be an example. There could be somebody who has spiritual sickness, and it's because of a sin, but it's not an implication that they sinned on purpose. You don't know. Maybe on purpose, maybe not. They could be a sick person. And Hashem is rofei cholim. Hashem helps to heal the sick. Matir asurim. And he also frees those who are bound. He helps people who have become habituated and entrenched in their sins to get free of them. Because it's really hard to break a habit. Sometimes we look at somebody and they're like, I could never stop doing such and such. And it's a little silly. Like, what do you mean? You could never stop, I don't know, going to the movies? Like, that's the one thing that, like, you just couldn't possibly do with that. It's like a little funny, you know? People go through different phases. But a person can feel literally bound and locked and a prisoner of their sins. Hashem helps to free people from that. Sorry. And so, that he helps those who fall. 
He helps pick up those who fall. That was the first case. Okay. So this is Hashem helping a person to conquer their Yetzirah and reverse the negative effects of what they've done. And the Maharam says that's, that's a type of Tchiyas HaMesim right there. Because in a, it sounds funny, like as opposed to physical Tchiyas HaMesim, is a spiritual Tchiyas HaMesim. So you could have Somech Noflim Rofei Cholim Umati Rasurim Umekayim Emunasa Afar, and he keeps his faith with those who are sleeping in the dirt. In other words, that somebody has sort of fallen themselves into the grave, into like a spiritual grave, and it looks like they're spiritually dead, and Hashem revives them. So he says that also is a kind of a Atzchiyat and that what keeps us alive is a spiritual force. Even physically, what keeps us going is spiritual forces inside of us, not any particular physical force, because physical forces keep deteriorating. The spiritual forces are the energy that keeps it, the whole system together and running. It makes a person alive. It's the difference between a, a body when it's alive and a body when it's dead. The difference is what's missing is their soul. So when a person's <laughs> soul is cured, they're really brought back to life. Because if their soul was sick, so physically, there's also some kind of sickness that comes out from that. And when a person is, is healed, so then they have more vibrancy and aliveness even in their physical life. He also goes on to say that it follows through all the way. So that when a person, when a person goes to sleep at night, we say it's like a 60th of death, right? Because the person's soul is a little bit in heaven. There's a little reckoning every day. But when a person wakes up in the morning, he's refreshed. We talked about this way back when in Brachos, when we talked about Hashem is Hanosein um, Koach, that he gives strength to those who are tired. And what a miracle it is that when we go to sleep, we take in less food and we're doing almost nothing and we wake up feeling stronger than when we started. More time has gone by. Our body should be more used up. <laughs> We're another 12 hours older since last night. And yet, we feel refreshed. So going to sleep makes a person wake up refreshed. And he, Mahara, I think he's still quoting the Maharam, I think. I'm not sure. He says that just like sleep refreshes a person and puts him back into his peak state, so death does also. That we don't think of it that way, but really, when a person passes away and their body gets sort of disassembled back into the earth, and there's a kapara from that, and then when he wakes up again with the tchiyas amesim, he's refreshed and restored and stronger than he was when he went to sleep. And this is like an amazing, I don't know, it seems like somehow a small and yet amazing new idea with regard to tchiyas amesim. This idea that a per and if we think that a person gets so refreshed from sleeping, and that's one sixtieth part of death, how refreshed and how much stronger and how healed we become through the gift of a long sleep and then waking up again from that. Okay. Now we're gonna like transition to kind of pulling the two ideas together because still we've got the ring kind of running in the middle, <laughs> falling in the middle of all the revival here. Okay. 
So this is this is pretty much based. I have a few other sources in here, but most of this is based on Rabbi Leff and his book on Shemona Esrei, which is just really an amazing book. And the slower you read it, or the more times you read it, the better it gets. He has a lot of shiurim online also. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them that are free to download. I forget the website. It might be ravleff.com. It's something like that. Very easy to find by Googling. Someone in his community constantly uploads his shiurim. It's great. Okay. So he starts with, or he doesn't start, he has quite a few essays here. He starts with this idea over here. We have a statement like this. Mi bal Who is like you? Now we've learned this before. The word who is mem yud, me, which is 50, which means all. And the way we actually read, we always, because in, especially in modern Hebrew, the way we say me, we always mean who. But the way this tends to read biblically is actually there is no one. Right? Right? That doesn't mean who is like you, and you would think there would be an answer. It's not even really a rhetorical question. It just means there's nobody like you. Okay? There is none like you. Baal Givuros, master of all powers, umido melach, and there is none comparable to you, Hashem. Melech memis umechaye, you put to death and you bring to life, umatzmiach Yeshua, and you sprout forth, you cause to grow and develop uh, Yeshua, salvation. Okay. So the question he asks over here is on the word kamocha. It's actually chamocha over here because it follows an open voweled word. So mi is mi chamocha, although there is a case where it's a cuff, but not here. <laughs> okay, over by Az Yasher. Mi chamocha, who's like you, master of all strengths? Meaning there's nobody like you, Hashem, who is master of all strengths. But that's a funny way to say it. It's bad enough to say who, like mi domelah, who is comparable to you. Dome is comparable, but kamocha means just like you, kamo. Kamo, it's just like, it's almost like interchangeable. It says, who's exactly like you, God? So the obvious answer is nobody, but it's still an odd thing, an interesting thing to say. Since everything comes from Hashem, there's nothing else that can exist that could duplicate him. Because everything has, at best, some subset of power that God granted. It never could have the whole. A part can never be as big as the whole that encompasses it. And no one is even dome, similar to Hashem. Similar, he says, would mean not exactly the same, but even in any way able to be compared. He says no one can even be compared to Hashem in terms of the power that Hashem exercises. He can bring death, he can give life, and he provides the ability to cultivate and nurture eternal salvation, salvation that lasts and lasts. And you remember um, that we spoke about last week that this idea of the tzmicha, which is organic growth, right? A tzomeach is a vegetable, something vegetative, a vegetal item, <laughs> Right, something that grows, anything, a plant, a palm tree, a sprout, anything that has the ability to grow and develop. It's not an animal, it's not a mineral, it's vegetable. That's tzomeach. 
So matzmiach Yeshua is to like develop, cultivate, grow Yeshua. It's a process of growth. That's a pro- this this sentence melech meimisu mechaye matzmiach Yeshua is not three separate things. It's a series. Meimis he brings death. Umechaye he brings life. Umatzmiach Yeshua, and in this way he develops the Geula and the redemption. That's the process. It's sort of night before day. Sleep, you have energy, wake, and when you wake up and you have the day. And in doing this, you have a development process that grows. And that ties in with the idea that and there was no rain and the vegetation did not grow. It was all sitting at the surface of the earth waiting for man to daven for it, and then there should be rain, and then things would grow. This process with the rain breaking things down, right? It's the same process that we're describing here of Tres HaMesim. It's not really separate from life. That's what life is about. It's a process of a breaking down and a coming to life through that, and in this way we develop to get love. This idea that nothing can be compared to Hashem is exactly <laughs> is exactly what Rav Hirsch told us was the lesson that we had to learn from the necessity of water, right? So he says it in B'Shalach on Yud Zayin, Pasuk Zayin. This was in the Parsha Shir a few weeks ago. That we came out of Egypt when the Jews came out of Egypt, which was a pagan society. So pagan societies believe, even the gods that they believe in, they believe that their gods are subject to forces of nature. That the forces of nature are higher than the forces of the gods. Mm-hmm. Right? So they have, I mean, if you think about Greek gods, I don't know too much about the, about the Egyptian gods, you know. Read little books here or there or something, I suppose. But <laughs> I have a great uncle, he should rest in peace, who amassed a significant Egyptology collection. So when they, he donated it near the end of his life to the Israel Museum, and they had a big opening, and, you know, the mayor was there, and it was like a whole big deal. And um, I asked my great aunt, his sister, if she was going to be going in now to see the exhibit. And she wanted to go to the other floor of the exhibit. The other floor, they were showing um, things from the Cairo Geniza, including something written by the son of the Rambam. You know, it was really quite an amazing. She says, I need to go see a whole bunch of Avodah Zarah. I've seen it before in his dining room. Like, who needs it? You know, like, it's kind of like, so, you know, my knowledge of Egyptology is like, whatever, you know. But I remember reading about, like, Norse gods and goddesses and the Greek gods and goddesses and the Roman gods and goddesses as a kid. They're all the same ones. They just gave them new names. Um, And, you know, one could kill another one. They could have lusts. They could get hungry. There were things they could do, and there were things they couldn't do because they were subjected to forces of nature. And so when we came out of Egypt, it was difficult to completely shake an understanding of the world that we had gotten there, which said that there's people, and they're subjected to two layers of bosses over them, the first layer being the gods, and the next layer being nature on top of that. And the lesson that we had to learn, and he says it had to become firmly established in our minds, this is a basic idea at the root of all Jewish thought, and it took the whole 40 years in the desert to develop it in us, and it was gradual. This, this 
the seed of an idea that's going to sprout in our minds had to be gradual, is based on recognizing. He says, this is the foundation, the very foundation of Jewish teaching is recognizing three points. The first is that God created nature and he has complete free mastery over it. He is in no wise bound by it nor is he bound by any of the laws of nature he has made to govern nature. That is a completely different idea than what other nations believed. Number two, and I'm not completely certain in what way exactly he distinguishes these two, they seem like they're very interconnected points, that God, who is one, who is personal, meaning we have a connection with him, he cares, he is free and almighty, has completely unlimited powers of governing the world. Now, I'm not sure exactly how he's distinguishing that from governing nature. Maybe he means also governing people. I don't know. And the third point is, above all, that man was created by God as a personality with complete free will of his own, right? In the image of God. And... Man is given by the free creator, who is unbound by any laws of nature, the mission of raising himself above the forces of nature. Because forces of nature tell us to do one thing, and we are meant to choose with our own free will to do the will of God. When we do that, we leave nature behind. <laughs> nature ends up far below us. And thus we become full, truly free serve, servants of God. So this is this fundamental idea that's coming in, in Gvuros. Okay. So the Medrash comments that there are three gifts that Hashem gave to the world. Wisdom, power, and wealth. All of which sound really good. People strive for these things, for wisdom, for power, for wealth. People really dedicate entire lives to this. And that one who merits any of them can have everything precious. But one who merits wisdom can have everything. So what's the difference then? I mean, I think we would sense that wisdom is in some way better than power or wealth. Wisdom at least should have some kind of more eternal or fundamental value. And yet the mission is trying to tell us that if you have wisdom, you could also have power and wealth. If you have power, you could also have wisdom and wealth. And if you have wealth, you could also get wisdom and power. Understand. He says, so when is this true, the Midrash asks, that if you have one, you have everything? He says, when the gifts are gifts that come from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, if a person has been given by Hashem wisdom, power, or wealth, now he's got everything. But if they don't come from Hashem, then they're not permanent, and he doesn't really have anything at all. Now, this is a strange thing, because what does it mean to say that if the gift is from God, then he really has something, and if the gift is not from God, he doesn't? Because what does it mean to have a gift that's not from God? How could he have it if, it if God didn't give it to him? So the Medrash goes on to explain that the value of these three gifts, wisdom, power, and wealth, and I think it's these three particular ones, because there's the other things where we know that it's the striving that makes the value. The Medrash says that these three gifts are valuable when they're given by Hashem and not grabbed. 
So we know people who spend their whole lives pursuing these ends. That's not really the value in them. Someone who spends his whole life chasing power, someone who spends his whole life chasing wealth, hasn't gotten anything of value, whether he gets the money or the power or not. But when Hashem gives it to him as a gift, okay, because no matter what, it's going to be Hashem who decides whether he gets it or not. So the question is, how hard did he try to get it? Was he trying to grab it? Okay, so what's the difference then? If Hashem's the one who gives it to him anyway, so what difference does it make if the person was grabbing it? The difference it makes is in the person's own perception. When you think that you have grabbed something yourself, then you have gotten nothing. But if you think that you have been given a gift of something, now you have everything. If what you have, you have a home, Hashem gave me a beautiful home, and you really feel that it's a gift from God, now you really have a home. You've gotten a gift. If a person feels, I did it, I did it myself. I grabbed it. There was this opportunity, and I ran in, and I pushed ahead of the other people who wanted to make a bid, and I, I whispered into the, the, buy, the, the seller's ear that their bid is going to fall through, and he believed me, and now I, ha-ha, I got it. He didn't get anything. Nothing of value. And then an example of that would, is one way of understanding about the tribes of God and Reuven, who asked they kind of jumped the gun to get a piece of Eretz Yisrael. They said, can we just have this piece right here? Right? And in the end, they didn't hang on to it so long. They ended up being exiled in advance. There wasn't a gain. What did they gain? They didn't gain. Okay. So the opposite of that is this message. Mi There's none like you who masters the powers. There's nobody who can even compare to you. Whatever it is I have, when I've gotten up from stumbling, when I've been healed from being sick, when I've been freed from being bound, all of this I recognize is really a gift from Hashem. It's, it's God doing it. It's not me. I don't have any actual power. It's all from God. Then I really have those things he's given me. That's, the, that's that message again of that from your hand is everything, and from your hand, God, we give to you. We take, we, it's, we take money from his hand and give it back to him, right? We give it to tzedakah for God, for the sake of God. We give it to him. That's how we really have things. The re- way we really have anything of value is in this way, through understanding that it's not us who grabbed it and did it, it's Hashem. You know, <laughs> I have like a personal, uh, a personal, um, what's the word? like a motto, not a motto, a statement, a thought to remember. Sometimes things can feel overwhelming. But when things, the purpose of things feeling overwhelming is to remind me that I don't have power to manage them, but Hashem has it under control. There's a purpose to getting overwhelmed. The purpose is to remind me that I actually don't have control, and Hashem does. Not just that I don't have control, but Hashem does. It's the same message of, of this whole bracha. Okay. (coughs) 
all the statements in this bracha, says Rav Berkowitz, aligns with this one idea, which is Hashem is all-powerful and we are weak. We have needs. Right? We said we're imperfect. We said that's the nature of everything physical is that it is imperfect. That's what allows us to change. That's what allows things in the world to be changed. The whole concept of development, matzmiach Yeshua, the growth, the organic growth of salvation is only because it isn't yet perfect. This is the concept of things developing into what God has created them to become. Hashem has all the power. We are weak and we have needs. That's exactly the message of Tchias HaMesim, that we are finite, and yet Hashem has all the power and he will make us live again. It's the same message. It's the same message we learn through rain, that Adam was created. He saw there was no rain. He saw there was a need for rain. He understood that it was good and asked for it. It's all the same message. There's, there are ingredients that we have no control over, and that is good. We recognize the, the tovasa, the good of the rain. That's why the rain is mixed in with the triasa mesim, not only because it's a model for it, but because it is a pattern that we can understand how it's good. Rain is a model, is a pattern that matches Tchiyas HaMesim. It's a pattern that matches all of our needs. And one thing we can learn from rain is that we can understand that it is truly good and we ask for it. We say, please, Hashem, send us rain. Even though it's inconvenient, and even though it's cold, and even though you can't dry your laundry, and even though right, you can't, we still ask for rain because we understand that in the big picture, that's really good. That's how things grow. And that this is how we understand all of our need and all of our dependence. So where the first bracha is about finding Hashem in existence and history, seeing that he is the source of all that is all bracha in the world, the second is the humility of acknowledging that he is the source of all in the world and the implication of that which is our own dependency and weakness and embracing that, saying that is a good thing and I will pray for Hashem to fill my needs. Right, that's what we talked about you quite a lot of years ago about the difference between chaser, that something lacking, and chesed, which means the bracha, the gift, the, free, the freely given gift. The difference between chaser and chesed is that they both start with a ches, and the second letter is a samech. But chaser ends in a resh, and chesed ends in a dalid. And a resh and a dalid are almost the same. The only difference is there's a little yud attached on the resh, and that makes the little bit that sticks out of the dalid. Because everything is chaser, bori nefashos, rabos, vechasron, and everything the physical is, is missing in some way, is lacking, has needs, and Hashem fills it. When you see that Hashem is there filling it, you suddenly see that this was chesed the whole time. The whole chaser was part of the chesed. There was a missing piece. The missing piece was recognizing that there's always going to be that missing ingredient, that's the lesson of rain, that Hashem will provide, that we're dependent upon Him for.
Okay. So elsewhere, we have here the idea of Matzmiach Yeshua. Hashem is developing or growing salvation. So there's a word similar to Yeshua, which is Tishua, which is often translated similarly. Rav Hirsch explains, and I know that I saw this sometime in the last six months, but I don't remember where in Rav Hirsch I saw it, this distinction between Tishua and Yeshua. He says, Tishua is victory. There's a battle and you win. It's Chua. But Yeshua with a Yud now has a relationship to Yesh. There is. So it means that there's something that exists that didn't exist previously. So whereas Teshua is victory, Yeshua is more substantive than that. It's a state of salvation that exists that didn't exist before. It's not just the resolution of the conflict or even the successful resolution of the conflict. It's something more than that. So Trias HaMesim is a Yeshua, which is interesting to have it called that. We would think of Yeshua as being saved from a crisis, but he actually says that this is a Yeshua because it's a new degree of existence that didn't exist before. When a person, that's like what we talked about, that a person goes to sleep and wakes up more refreshed than he started, even though time has gone by. That this is a this is a miracle, this is a gift that Hashem gives to those who have merit. And one of the fundamentals of the merit here, we have here Umekayim Emunaso Lishene Afar, that Hashem is establishing, fulfilling Emunaso, his faith, with those who sleep in the dust. So one aspect of this is that Trias Hamesim has some dependence on a person having that emuna, that trust in God that there is techiyas hamesim. And it is a very important tenet of belief that yesh techiyas hamesim in ha-Torah, that we learn about techiyas hamesim from the Torah. It's promised within the Torah. I know we came across that at least once in a Shabbashir, right, that we understand that techiyas hamesim is min ha-Torah. Um, one place it's described is in Daniel, and it seems to be the source of some of the terminology used in this bracha. Make sure I have a copy out of the whole passage farther along here. Okay, not sure. Rabbi Mishene Admas Afar, many of those who are sleeping in the Admas Afar, in the earth of dust, or the dust of the earth, or the earth of the dust, Earth of the dust. Yakitsu. Well then wake up. Some will wake up for eternal life and some will wake up and it'll be shameful for them. This is the final day of judgment. So Rav Schwab quotes Rav Aaron Cutler about the final day of judgment. And he says, when a person passes away, he's judged for his actions in the world. What did you what did you manage to accomplish with the tools and resources that you were given? But over time, there can be other effects of a person's life, even after they're gone. Maybe they spoke to somebody and gave them encouragement, and the person that they encouraged 
continued to act based on that encouragement and, and courage that they felt for many years afterward, right? Maybe a person, I heard somebody gave an example on a, in a shear. Rabbi Left gave an example on a recording. He said, what if somebody um, heard that there was a, a family that was having trouble paying tuitions? So he pays tuition for that kid to go to a Jewish day school. So when he passes away, there might be a lot of merit to him that he gave tzedakah, and that this child, who would not otherwise have had a Torah education, has a Torah education. That's unbelievable merit. He said, but there's also another judgment at the time of Tchiyas HaMesim. And in that judgment, there's going to be an accrual, because now there's not just that kid who went and got a Torah education that he wouldn't have gotten, which is a big merit. But now he married a Jewish woman. And maybe he wouldn't have if he had gone off to public school. And not only did he marry a Jewish woman, he had Jewish children. And maybe he had a bris milah for the boys. And maybe he sent them to a Jewish school. And maybe they're also learning Torah. And maybe they're also going to marry Jewish people. And maybe they're going to teach Torah, right? So there are all these consequences that could come out from a person's actions that need to be factored back into the equation later on. They don't get forgotten, even though they're later. Because otherwise you would say, why could you? He says, Rav Schwab says, after hundreds of years, one friendly word could result in an enormous amount of Kedusha being brought into the world. You could say a friendly word and encourage a person, and that little bit of encouragement could help that person build his own emuna in Hashem, which he might pass on to his children and grandchildren for generations. That one word. So at the end of time, a person also gets a benefit and reward. Again, if you think about this, this unbelievable concept that when you go to sleep, you wake up and time has passed and you're stronger, not weaker. Even though you're older when you wake up in the morning. <laughs> And when a person passes away, when he wakes up again, he will be stronger. I think this is similar to this idea. Because a person's good actions, while he's sleeping, they are building, not decreasing. Everything he's doing keeps on compounding. It's like building compound interest in his sleep. And when we wake up, we have much more energy and strength than when we went to sleep. And this is Yeshua. This is salvation that's not just victory. It's not just being saved from a problem. It's a new level of existence that wasn't even there at the beginning. So this is this, is this phrase, He fulfills the, his faith with those who sleep in the dust. There is no one who has God's power, master of all powers, comparable to him, who causes death, and brings to life, and in doing this develops and grows a new degree of salvation and existence that wasn't there. I wanted to say, it does not mention it here, it's really funny. This is Rav Schwab. So there's a famous story, I, I think I heard this probably from Rabbi Pesach Kron, that's told about Rabbi Schwab's brother, Rav Mordechai Schwab, that he went to yeshiva, they were German, they were German Jews, 
But he went to yeshiva in Eastern Europe, which was a very uncommon thing to go do. Germany had yeshivas, of course, but there were better yeshivas, or at least for him, it was a better yeshiva in Europe. And it was a little bit like if now you would decide that you're going to go to a yeshiva in Poland or Russia or something. It's like a little weird. And the country is kind of backward compared to where we live and maybe not so couth and cultivated and cultured. And why would you go? And he went, and his parents were supportive because his parents were Tamidich Chachamim and good people, but it, his father believed that you have to have Derech Eretz, Torah in Derech Eretz, and you should at some point be coming back to earn a living. And after he had been in yeshiva, I think it was about four years, Rav Mordechai Schwab got a letter from his father saying, you know, really, it's time to come back now. I'm glad you've had such a successful run of learning full-time in yeshiva, but now you come back and you'll start to also train for some other job and, and ex expectation that you'll keep learning your whole life. And he was very uncomfortable about it, but he respected his father and he was, I guess, planning to go back. Um, and one morning, one of the Bahrim, one of the other boys in the yeshiva came to him and said, okay, I have a message for you. So he's like, you have a message for me? He says, yeah, this is going to sound really weird, but I had a dream that an old man came to me and said, mashiv haruach umorid hagoshem. And he said this a few times. And he said, go tell Mordechai Schwab, Mashiv HaRuach Umorid HaGashem. So I woke up in the morning and I thought, okay, I better, you know, change my diet or something. Like, that's a really weird dream. <laughs> and he said he had the dream three times. The same old man came to him in the dream and said the same thing. So finally he comes to this Bachar. He says, are you Mordechai Schwab? I think it might have been, even been a boy from another yeshiva. I think that I think the story is that there were yeshivas used to group together around the time of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Elul, so that there were more people together and they would inspire each other at that time of year. It may have been a boy from not even his own yeshiva. Anyway, this boy comes to him and says, "Are you Mordechai Shwabia?" He said, "Listen, I know it's weird, but three times I had the dream. Somebody wants you to have this message. Don't ask me what it means. I don't know." Mashiv Aruach Mordechai. He said, "Who?" He says, okay, I don't know what it means. What, who was the man who told you the message? He says, I don't know who he was. He said, would you recognize him? He said, yes. So they start looking at pictures. And they're looking at pictures, and finally Rav Mordechai Schwab shows him a pictures of his family, and he says, oh, that's him. That's the man. He's in one of the pictures. It was his grandfather who had passed away. And the boy says, I recognize him. He's the one. For three nights he's been coming and telling me that I have to give you this message. So Mordechai Schwab understood that the message meant Mashiv HaRuach means God causes the winds to blow. Umorid HaGashem, and he brings down rain. But he understood that that wasn't the message. It was Mashiv HaRuach, bring, bring like flowing the Ruchnias, the spiritual, Ruach, like spirit, Umorid, and bring down, like lower, HaGashem, the Gashmias, the physical. So he took this that his grandfather was telling him that really it would be better for him to keep on learning and not to, I mean, anyway, he would keep learning, but to keep learning full time 
and to minimize the Geshem, the Gashmias, the physical. And he wrote to his parents, and he told his father about this dream that this other boy had had, and that he had come to him, and that this is how he understood it. And his parents agreed. And they said, yes, that's probably what it means, so you stay. We'll take this as good advice. You stay in yeshiva, uh, which he did. And then ultimately he became a rabbi. I mean, he, he did have to pay his bills also, but he became a rabbi. He did not go into some other line of work and learn on the side, which is just like a different way of reading Mashiv HaRuach HaMoronagashem. It's definitely not the pshat. The pshat is that Hashem brings in the wind and he brings down the rain. Okay. Um, all right. Rav Schwab teaches that we have things in our world that are patterns that are similar to Tchias HaMesim. We said rain was an example of that, right? Someone getting sick and then getting better, falling down and then getting up, having financial trouble and recovering. These are events that we can experience in life that give us a model for understanding the idea of Tchiyas HaMesim. And that the, the way that this bracha is written is to indicate, to point to things like that. A person who's confined to jail or tied down and then released. Right? All of these are different angles. They're not all identical. Each pattern is slightly different and gives us a different insight into what Tchiyas HaMesim is about, right? So in one, Rofei Cholim, so now a person is stronger. Matir Asurim, a person is freer. They can range more widely. They can have a wider impact. So Noflim, a person is down and can get up, is a greater ability to, to move or a different sphere that they're working in. I don't know exactly, but each of them is a slightly different angle. And through exploring how those feel and looking to our own lives and the lives of people around us, we use those as templates for thinking about Tchiyas HaMesim, even though we don't have a direct, too many direct descriptions of Tchiyas HaMesim. We know that the Torah does teach us about Tchiyas HaMesim, but we don't have too many descriptions of the next world. So he says, we, we talked about the word Mechalkel, meaning kol and kol, and God providing in the spiritual needs and the physical needs. But he says there's also a relationship with the word kol of limitation. <coughs> he mentions kalo, which is restraint, like being in, imprisoned in jail. Kul, something being contained, like a kali, which is a container. So there's some kind of boundary or, respect, or restriction. Mechalkel chaim bechesed, he says there is a little bit of a hint there that God provides life with chesed, and yet it's somehow a bit limited. But in the future, mechayim esim berachamim rabim, with a lot of rachamim. In other words, this world being the more physical world, everything has some limitation. But the next world, not only the next world, meaning after death, but the world of Trias HaMesim, the messianic era, the era of Yeshua, is an era where things achieve perfection. Perfection is a spiritual state. It's a state, right? We said it's not really changing. It's already achieved perfection. 
that that which is limited at some level in the life and the world that we know will be unlimited in the world of Tchiyas HaMesim. That's one of the lessons over here. So what we're looking at are day-to-day examples that give us hints to what Tchiyas HaMesim is, but fundamentally it's a different existence because it's every, all the bracha is unlimited, not limited by the limitations of the physical. So the, the angles he provides are Someich noflim, Hashem supporting the falling. When a person has failures and disappointments and it feels like there's no hope, they're just tumbling, falling, like noflim, falling and falling and falling. It's a constant present state of falling. Just terrible feeling. And then suddenly they find that Hashem has lifted them back up. Every, the whole trajectory is turned around, not just the pro, any particular problem. But now they're not falling and falling and falling. They're being picked up and up and up. That's a kind of trias hamesim. Now, this is rare, and a person never knows if it's permanent. A person could lose a lot of money in stocks and then gain a lot of money in stocks and then lose a lot of money. Like, things can come and go. But it's a model that allows us to see that concept, that things could seem like they're spiraling down and down and down with no bottom in sight, and all of a sudden can find that Hashem is just picking them way up to the top again, that it really was an elevator, you know, and they're just being lifted back up. Healing the sick, that a person can have a sense of hopelessness. Doctors could tell somebody that there's no hope, there's no cure, and he'll never get well, and he could still have a recovery. It might be inexplicable, and he could live for many years. That's also a kind of trias hamesim. Matir Asurim, freeing those who are bound. He, of course, not, not of course, but he gives, he, he gives as the primary case from his own lifetime. If someone's in a concentration camp and the American army suddenly captures the camp, <laughs> they appear out of nowhere, they free the prisoners. It's a kind of a tchias amesim. Their life seemed to be getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and all of a sudden, it has opened up again in a way that it wasn't. When we go to sleep and then we wake up, there is an aspect of Trias HaMesim. We leave, we stop influencing, good morning, good morning. We stop influencing, we stop being able to get things done. Our sphere of influence has shrunken quite a lot when we're asleep. And then we, wa- we wake up. To the point, he says, where if someone, for whatever reason, forgot to say the bracha in the morning of Elokai neshama shenosata vitahorahi, God, the soul that you gave me is pure. You created it, and you guarded in me, and you will in the future take it away, away from me, and in the future you will give it back to me. Baruch atah Hashem, hamachazir neshamos of Gorimesim, who returns souls to bodies, you don't go back and say it again once you've said Shemona Esrei. Because you've said this bracha. This bracha covers, Tchias HaMesim covers Elokai Neshama, really. Which is a great insight by itself. Similarly, 
Modeani. The first thing we wake up in the morning and we say, Modeani lefanecha, I acknowledge before you, God who is everlasting and the source of all life. Oh, must be in here somewhere. <laughs> there it is. I don't usually use that part of the sitter. I don't have my sitter next to me when I wake up in the morning. Who returned to me my soul with love or compassion Rabba emuna secha. Great is your faith. Great is your trust. So when we say, great is Hashem's trust, who's he have to trust in? He knows what will be. It means Hashem is trusting in us. Great is his trust in me. That he gave me a soul, even, even, even taking into account all the things I did yesterday, he gave me a soul again today. So that means that despite the fact that it's not possible, either when I was sleeping or how I was behaving, to, to see that I am actually going to use this soul in the best possible way, nonetheless, he knows that in fact, I do have something big that I can contribute. So he keeps giving it to me, because that's what we know about Imuna. Imuna is when your behavior is based upon what you know to be true, even though you can't see it at the moment. So now let's come back and see. And it's interesting how, again, it's tied in with the returning of the soul. Now if we come back to our Shmona Esrei, we have, He keeps his trust to those sleeping in the dirt. And either it's their trust in him or his trust in them which would fit more closely with Modeani, meaning even when they're sleeping, he's going to give them back their souls afterward. Um, there's also You are faithful to bring the dead to life. So Rav Hirsch says like this. He says, could be construed as indicating, you could read it a few different ways. Number one is that Hashem keeps his promises even to people who have died, meaning they have not gotten the reward promised to them during their lifetime. We shouldn't think that means that Hashem did not keep his promise. He keeps his promise even to people who have already died before their salvation came because he keeps it to them in the next world and also through the children living afterward. This is very much like we saw in the book of Shemos, where Hashem says, uh, in the beginning of Parsha's Va'era, Hashem says to Moshe, I'm revealing you to myself using the name Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey, but to the Avos, they knew me as Kel Shakai, Ushmi Hashem Lo Nadati. They did not experience God as the one who, at, who, who they saw fulfilling his promises. They saw it because he said it. God said a promise, then for them it was a fact, and it was happening already. Maybe it was going to take past their lifetime to be fulfilled, but that's okay. Good stuff takes time. Okay.
sorry. Thank you. Maybe just in case. Thank you. Sorry. Okay. That some promises take time, and that wasn't a problem for them. God keeps his promise, and that's something that's harder for us to see because we don't have their degree of perfection of emuna that our forefathers had. The more emuna we have, emuna means letting our behavior be guided by what we know to be true, even though we don't see it right now. That's exactly what the forefathers were doing, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. They were living their whole life based on God's promises, even though they couldn't see the fulfillment right now. It didn't matter because they knew it was true. It was a fact. So that was enough. The second way we could read this, umekayim emunaso yafar, is this is a little bit the way this is written. It overlapped two different ideas. Good morning. The first, so I'm going to break it up a little differently from what he did just because it's these two. Number one is that it's, it, the person himself is receiving the salvation from God. So a person who is, as Rav Schwab said, he's in the, there were people in the concentration camps who did not live until they were saved, right? They might have been looking to God to save them and didn't leave to live to see the salvation. But Hashem is keeping their faith in the world to come. It's not gone. Just because we don't see it in this world, this world is only a very small piece of the whole reality. The second reading is that it continues on with the children that live after a person. And that just as, as punishments are not meted out all in one big fell swoop, also rewards and salvation happens over time and is spread across generations. And the third way of reading it is something that we saw in Shema. You might remember that in Shema, it says, in order that your days and the days of your children will be made many, upon the earth which God swore to your forefathers to give to them. It could be that this puzzle encapsulates all these ideas that are right here. wouldn't be so, so astonishing because the chapter of the Hayaim Shamoa in Shema corresponds pretty closely to the concept of Gevuros. The first one was more with Chesed, the second one was with Gvura, with reward and punishment, and the third one with the reconciliation. It's entirely possible that that's why it connects together. I never thought about it before. <laughs> okay. So over here we have the question, what does it mean Hashem swore to your forefathers to give to them? So the simple answer is, he gave it to them by giving it to their children. Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov did not inherit the land of Israel directly, but their children did. That's even better and lasts longer, right? But really, this is one of the places where the Torah is pointing to us that there is Tchiyas HaMesim. Because God promised the forefathers to give them the land. If they didn't get it yet, that means it's still coming to them. That they will still come back and they will live in the land. Because God promised it to them. That's umekayim emunasa lishene yafar. I think it's really probably the ideas that Rav Hirsch is saying over here are really these same ideas that we see in that second paragraph of Shema. 
your days will be lengthened, the days of the children will be lengthened, and the original forefathers who received the promise, they'll also come and be there. They'll also receive it. That's really the message of Trias HaMesim. The message of Trias HaMesim is part of the emuna, the trust that Hashem is giving all the rewards he promised. Because not everything comes during a person's lifetime. Some of it has to come the next time he wakes up. That's okay too. That's better even. Rav Hirsch says, Baruch Mechaye Hamesim, that's the closing bracha here, Baruch Atah Hashem, Mechaye Hamesim, blessed is Hashem who brings life to the dead. There can hardly be another thought that can so inspire man firmly to resolve to live life so vigorous, unwavering, fearless, and unswervingly dutiful than the belief in Trias HaMesim. This is one of the thoughts that really can help give a person the inspiration, motivation, and energy to live their life securely in doing God's will. And this is the firm conviction that to God, not even the dead are lost forever. That's like, I guess that sums up this whole message, right? What Rav Schwab talked about, the different kinds of hopelessness of someone who's sick or someone who seems to be failing constantly. But to God, not even the dead are lost forever. It's never over. It's never too late. Nothing is completely hopeless. Even for the physical body, death is not the end. It is a transition period from one life to the next and that next life is even more vigorous and healthy than the previous one. So I will, I think, stop here. It could be that we will, maybe we'll finish there for this bracha. There's a few more like this and that, but I think that's really, that's really the conclusion. Is Baruch Mechai HaMesim, that there's really nothing that is more inspiring and more helpful to us and and that reminds me a little bit, if, we, if we're putting that model and seeing it every morning when we wake up and remembering that whatever happened yesterday, today's a new day. They say that the Chafetz Chaim, at about 10 o'clock every night in his home, they would go around, turn off all the lights and say, tomorrow is another day. That there comes a point in the night where you stop pushing and you stop trying to get things done and you say, Hashem is taking care of it. I am only limited. And Hashem has all the strength needed. He's got it under control. He's, I'm not managing anything. He is. Therefore, I can go to sleep securely. Tomorrow is a fresh new day. Whatever the mistakes and problems of the day, tomorrow's a new day. Hopefully even better than the one before. Okay. Thank you. That's a beautiful idea because you're never... You always know there's hope. There's always hope. We're used to saying where there's life, there's hope. But what Rav Hirsch is telling us is, even when we look, when we think there isn't life, there's hope. There's no end to God's kindness. Is that the Rabbi Swab that you were always interested in? You always... Mordecai Schwab. No, no, Mordecai Schwab. Shimon Schwab. Shimon Schwab, who wrote the book on God. Okay.
Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so inspiring. <laughs>